Well, welcome to Ritson Road Alliance Church, and uh, my name is Chris Corbin, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here. Um, and yeah, just glad that you are with us. Glad you have arrived this morning, that you are here to worship Jesus, our King and our Savior. Uh, before Christmas, I shared with you um, a dream that I had. Um, it, it was tied into a sermon series that we were doing, but I talked about um, how I always wanted to do some pottery at a potter's wheel. And uh, it's been something I've wanted to for a really long time, but I had never had an opportunity to do it. And at Christmas time, for Christmas, Amanda surprised me with a gift of a pottery class and the opportunity to, to go and use a potter's wheel with some instruction. And, and so for our anniversary, that's what we did. We got to go and we got to make some pottery. And when I shared that with you, many of you were excited and, and rejoiced with us, and that's the beauty of family. Um, as we get to share in each other's struggles, we also get to share in one another's joys. And I think it was you, Pastor Ron, that kind of shouted out, well, where is it? And of course, if you know anything about pottery, you know that it takes a long time. This is not an overnight process. Um, you, have to, you have to mold it, you have to shape it, it has to be fired, you have to glaze it, and then it gets fired again. But this morning, I have for you the pottery that Amanda and I made for you guys to see, because just I get to show off. It's one of the perks of being the pastor. And so this nice, beautiful blue one is the one that Amanda did. And then this green one is the one I was able to do. And so, yeah. You probably can't see them very well from there. But uh, it was a privilege. I was excited when we got to go and pick them up. You can take a look at them later. I won't leave them here because the kids like to jump on the stage. But if you're interested in seeing them. It really gave me a new appreciation, um, the whole process, um, and thinking about how God is referred to as, as the potter, and he, he molds us and shapes us like the clay, and the process which it took, and God is so patient with us. As I said, this is not something, I mean, we did this on December 28th. That's when we went and we made the pottery, and it wasn't until this week that we were able to pick it up when it was finally finished. And so, it is a lengthy process. It does not happen overnight. And the same is true for our spiritual journeys and for God's work in us. It is a lengthy process. It is not done overnight. This morning, we're gonna continue in our series called Believe. Uh, we're looking at the signs and the miracles that Jesus performed and as were reported by the Apostle John. And if you remember, John gives us his purpose in recording these miracles at the end of his gospel, and he writes this in John chapter 20. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of, the, of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I wonder how many of you remember what is the Greek word that was translated believe? Just shout it out. There we go. Pistuo. What does it mean? Does anyone remember? To go all in. 
complete surrender, complete trust. My hope is that this morning as we look at our passage, you'll have a sense and a desire to go all in. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, we come to you and we have worshipped you. We have sung praise to your name. We have glorified you in our presence. We revere you, Lord. And our praise and our glory that we extend to you is, is a gift that you have given to us. That we can come to you and worship you. That you have drawn us to yourself. This morning, I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and speak to us. Scriptures tell us that you have come to illuminate your word. So we invite you to speak to us. Body, soul, and spirit. We invite you to turn away all of the distractions that may come, all of the thoughts that that keep us from focusing on you. Attune our hearts and our minds to you this morning, Jesus. And may you be glorified. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at John's description of the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000. And before we dive into the text, I just want to bring a few things to your attention about this passage. and We're not necessarily going to be touching upon them. Um, as we go through this morning, but the first one is this, is that the feeding of the 5,000 is a really common story. And I don't mean common is that it it has no value. It's just something that we're often very familiar with. It's a familiar uh, Sunday school story. It's a familiar sermon or passage to be preached on. And so sometimes we, we need to be careful that we're not lulled into thinking we know everything that there is to know about the passage or the Word of God. We need to allow God's Word to ruminate within us, to speak to us, that we might hear Him. The second thing I want you to know about this passage is that it's actually tied to the miracle that we're going to be looking at next week when Jesus walks on the water. And it's part of a much broader portion of of John's Gospel where, where Jesus is making the declaration that He is the bread of life. And so it's important to realize that as we're talking about it this morning, there, there, we can pull out truths to this passage, but there is so much of a, a greater context that you have to take into consideration. And the third thing that I want to point out this morning is that other than the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. And so there's probably a pretty good indication that this was a significant moment in the life and in the ministry of Jesus. And so with that being said, those are three things you can kind of have in the back of your mind. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 reads this. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. 
the Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test them, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I wanted to take a little bit of time to just pull apart this passage, a few verses at a time, and then I want to share a few observations that I have at the end. But starting in verse 1, as John has done before, he describes Jesus as moving from one place to another. It says that he crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. But right before that, it says, sometime after this, and I think whenever we read something like that, if you were to find something in a book that says, therefore, you want to go back and, and remember what is it that is being referred to there. And so we need to take a moment just to, to go back. What has happened right before John is describing the events that, have happened, that are happening here? And there's a couple things that we need to look at. And the first one is really this, is that if we back up into John chapter 5, we see it's Jesus healing the man at the pool. This man who has been lame or, or, or injured or paralytic for 38 years. But what was so significant about this miracle for a lot of people was that Jesus performed it on the Sabbath. And for the religious leaders, you don't do anything on the Sabbath. And so this caused a controversy. It caused an uproar. And so the religious leaders actually began to persecute and demand Jesus to tell them who he was and by what authority he was given. And in response to the leaders, this is what Jesus basically tells them. He says, you have absolutely no clue what you're talking about. This is the the Pastor Chris summary, okay? He says, you have no clue what you're talking about and you have not even heard the voice of God. You don't even know who God is. This is what he's speaking to the religious leaders. John chapter 5, verses 36 to 40 says this. This is the words of Jesus. He says, For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. 
Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one who he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me and have life. As I was reading those words, I was reminded that this is a powerful statement that Jesus has made. And I think it's one that should cause all of us, especially if we've been in the church for any length of time, to just to pause and consider that just because someone knows the Scriptures, it doesn't mean that they necessarily know Jesus. The religious leaders were so convinced that they knew everything about who God was going to be and everything about Him. They, they knew the Scriptures inward, forward, and backwards. They had them memorized. They could quote them. And yet they missed the very person that the Scriptures were speaking of standing right in front of them. You see, you can have a religious spirit. You can have a lot of biblical knowledge and you can you could love to read your Bible. You can love to come to church and, and, and to talk about God and yet it's possible for you to have never encountered Jesus. Later on, we're going to see there's a contrast between the religious leaders and their lack of understanding, their lack of of being able to see Jesus for who he is, and, and the response of the ignorant masses. In fact, the Jewish leaders would often belittle the right the common folk because they had no clue about the scriptures. And yet it was the illiterate masses, those who were not familiar with all of the words of Scripture that began to see Jesus as the Messiah. They certainly don't grasp the fullness of why Jesus comes, but they were able to see what the religious leaders couldn't. The other thing that we can pull out out of this in in the words sometime after that is that it, it helps us to recognize that this was not immediately following It wasn't as though Jesus has just come away from from Jerusalem and and debating with the religious leaders and all of a sudden now he's at the mountain, he's crossing over. It actually indicates that there's some time has passed. If you look down at verse 4, it says the Jewish Passover festival was near. And so some scholars would actually even begin to suggest that a whole year has passed between the time when Jesus healed the man. If you remember when Jesus healed the man, It was right before one of the festivals. It was the reason why he was at the pool, potentially, was so that he could purify himself. And so the possibility, and we don't know the number of time, it could have been months, it could have been a full year, but a whole season from one festival to another has passed. And during that time, we see that a great crowd of people is, is forming around Jesus because of the signs and the miracles that he's performing. He's been healing the sick. And all of these miracles are testifying to the fact that the Father has sent him. I was thinking about this and I began to think about what would my reaction be if if I was there? If I was hearing about a healer, who was going around declaring that he was the Son of God and that he had the power to heal the sick. I think that initially I would have been dismissive. I probably would have just thought, well, maybe he, he's... Op-. I would have been like the religious Pharisees. 
Maybe he's operating under the power of Satan. Maybe he's a great deceiver, and this isn't true. Maybe, maybe there's physical explanations as to what has happened, and it's not miraculous in any way. But the more people begin to talk about this Jesus guy and the power that he had to heal, I think I would be intrigued. I think my curiosity would have been piqued. And I can tell you actually from first-hand experience that that was my response. That was my response when I heard that Jesus could heal and he could bring wholeness and freedom. But I think there's this interest that people are, are curious. What is going on? What's happening? Who is this man? And one of the beautiful things about the fact that this account is recorded in all four Gospels is that we can actually look at the other Gospels and see the context a little bit more. And if you turn to Mark's Gospel and his account of the feeding of the 5,000 right before it, the section that comes right before it is when Jesus actually sends out his disciples. In Mark 6, we read that calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over impure spirits. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So not only is Jesus going around and healing the sick, casting out demons, proclaiming the gospel, but we know that there has been a period of time where his disciples are doing the same. They have gone out two by two, and we don't know if they went two at a time and they would come back and another two would go, or if they all went out in groups of two. But his disciples have gone out through all of Galilee. They are proclaiming the gospel message. The kingdom is here and it is at hand. Repent. Be healed. I was thinking that if I began to hear about Jesus doing these things, that would have been one thing. But all of a sudden, I'm hearing about his disciples and they are doing the same thing. They have the same message. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. May you know healing and wholeness. For me, that would have drove me to action. It would have, it would have broken that point of curiosity to the point where I would have had to go and do something. I would have wanted to see this Jesus for myself. If we continue reading in Mark's Gospel, and this is kind of, it brings us back to where we are in John's Gospel. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so this brings us back into this place. We, we've seen this, that Jesus is going out and he's, he's healing people. He's healing the sick. His disciples are doing the same thing and they've gathered together. They've come back. And in John's Gospel, in verses 3 to 4, it says, Then Jesus went up to the mountain and he sat down with his disciples. It's as though Jesus has traveled across the Sea of Galilee and up to the mountains just so that he can rest just so he can spend some time with his disciples to hear their reports. They are gathered so that they can sit and talk and fellowship. 
They want to share all of the things that God has done and all of the things that they've been able to do. What's interesting about this is that a mountainside really is not a very discreet location. You would think Jesus has gone around, he's amassed this following, this great crowd who is following him. The disciples are declaring the same thing and and people are probably coming to them as well. And so people are looking for them. And going up onto the mountainside, I think if I was wanting to get away, I would want to hide somewhere quiet and dark. Maybe in a cave or maybe in a house where people are, there's walls to keep them out. But a mountainside is a really convenient place if you want to be seen and heard. And that's what happens because the, the crowds find them. The crowds who were looking for them come and, and they follow them. And in verses 5 and 6, it says that Jesus saw the crowd. He saw them coming towards them. And he turns to Philip and says, where are we going to get the bread to feed these guys? They have been following us. They're hungry. How are we going to feed them? And I think Jesus may have done this for two reasons. The first reason is this, is that Philip was a local. If you had a map up there, and maybe I could have done that for you, you would see that where they were located as they crossed over to the Sea of, Gal- over the sea of Galilee, the closest town that they would have been to would have been Bethsaida. And this is where Philip was from. Out of all of the disciples, Philip was the one who would have known the resources that would have been available to them. Jesus is asking him, hey, Philip... What, how many bakers are in Bethsaida? Do you think we could get enough bread for them? The second reason I think Jesus asked Philip was that Philip was at the wedding feast in Cana. Philip was there when Jesus turned water into wine. You think that Philip would have remembered that. Jesus' ability to turn nothing into something. In verse 7, we see Philip's response. And I love Philip because I feel like I sometimes really relate to him. He just can't get beyond the physical. He can't move beyond the limitations to see what God is doing. And so he starts to tell Jesus that like, even if there was enough bread available, even if we could find enough bakers who could perform, who could bake enough loaves of bread for the people, it would be way too much money for us to be able to buy this. In the NIV it says it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for them, even to get a bite. Andrew, on the other hand, he takes a different approach. He finds what's available. He looks out into the crowd and he sees maybe a boy there, and we know that it's a boy. And this young boy has bread and he has some fish for his lunch. The boy would have been no older than 8 or 10 years old, so he would have been about Isaiah's age. 
Here's this little boy who is also interested in knowing about Jesus, who is following him to hear his teachings. And all he has to offer is a few small barley loaves and a few fish. But Andrew brings him to Jesus and says, look, this kid still has some lunch. What are you going to do with that, Jesus? You have to remember that in Jesus' day, and and this is something that really strikes me, that barley loaves were an indication of a poor family. Barley was primarily used as feed for livestock. And so if you were to make barley loaves, it meant that you didn't have the money or the means to get wheat. So this is a young, poor boy. The fish, on the other hand, they would have likely been smoked or pickled. And so they would have been a little bit of a delicacy. They were likely a treat for the boy. Here's a snack in your lunch. Something a little bit more than the loaves. And so Andrew brings the boy and they present it to Jesus. But even with what the boy has to offer, Andrew really isn't certain what Jesus is going to do. How far will that go among so many? Jesus has them sit down. He gives them instructions. And, and we know that from other passages that they sat down in groups of 50 and 100. And he gives thanks and he breaks the bread and he begins to distribute it. And we don't know if it was the disciples who distributed it. From the other accounts, that's who distributed the bread. But John tells us that there were 5,000 men present. We already know that there was at least one boy there. So the likelihood was that there was also women and children present. And so although it says that it was the feeding of the 5,000, it was likely a feeding of 10 to 20,000. Another interesting note that I was thinking of as I was reading through this and, and share with you is that in a group of that size, We certainly see the poor. We see the boy who only has barley loaves. But that size of a group would have most certainly had those who were wealthy. Those who had social status and power. And yet Jesus invites all of them to sit and to be fed. 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people. I did some math, and I figured this out, and this is my math, and if you are better at math than me, then you can correct me. But if the disciples were to feed one person every five seconds, in a minute, they would feed 12 people. Knowing that there's 12 disciples at 12 people a minute, we have 144 people who are served in one minute. If there are 10,000 people being served, It would have taken them over an hour to serve all of the people that were seated there. If there was 20,000 people, it would have taken them over two hours, close to two and a half hours. Can you imagine it? Sitting there waiting, knowing that Jesus has taken these five little loaves and he has given thanks and they're being distributed among you. The first couple of people would have been great. They would have thought, hey, I'm, I'm getting my portion. What about those who had to wait almost an hour or two hours? 
What would they have been thinking? Jesus, is there enough for me? What were the disciples thinking? As they're handing out the bread and it is, it's unending. They would have been in complete shock, I think. The bread just simply wasn't running out. John continues in verses 12 to 13, and we're told that after everyone had had enough to eat, Jesus commands the disciples to pick up the leftovers. You remember, Philip's concern was that even if they had enough bread to buy, they wouldn't have enough money to give them even a bite, even a small morsel, and yet here they are being filled to the full. Being filled to overflowing. And when they gather up all of the leftovers, they're left with 12 filled baskets. As I was sitting in my quiet time yesterday and I was reflecting upon this, what struck me is that a lot of this is an allusion or a reference to Moses. It's a reference to Moses going up on the mountain. It's a reference to Moses um, providing uh, bread in the desert. And so when the Israelites were out in the desert, when they were wandering in the wilderness and God provided manna for them, the instructions that he gave to the people was that they were only to gather as much as they needed for that day. Anything else that they gathered would would just rot. And yet in this instance, when Jesus is feeding them, when Jesus breaks the bread, when Jesus gives them bread, He commands them to gather the leftovers and there is 12 full baskets. This is a revelation of God's kingdom entering. God's kingdom is a kingdom of abundance. John clearly wants us to understand that a miracle has taken place. We don't, I don't know if the 12 baskets was significant of how many disciples there were and that they were able to gather enough. It doesn't really matter how many baskets. There was more than what they had started with. God had provided. And this was a miracle that only someone who was sent from God could perform. This was a miracle that only the one who spoke for God could have done. And in verses 14 to 15, all of a sudden we see something change in the people. It's as if those light bulbs are starting to go off. They're starting to put two and two together. They're starting to remember the stories about Moses. If you remember way back to verse 4, this was why they were there. This is why they had gathered. They were celebrating the Passover festival. They were remembering the time when Jesus led the people out of Israel, out of their bondage and slavery, out of, Israel, out of Egypt. They're remembering that this is what they're celebrating. They're celebrating, they're telling stories of Moses, they're singing of the great things that God has done and how God provided for the people. And here is Jesus on the mountainside breaking bread. They had been waiting for this day. 
They were longing for it. They were pining for the day when another deliverer like Moses would come. And here was a man who claimed to be from God. Who had the power to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and who could make bread from heaven appear. The crowds saw in Jesus what the religious leaders could not. They saw him as a Messiah. They saw him as a king. And surely he was the answer to all of their problems. What they didn't understand was that Jesus had come for so much more than just to set them free from the bonds, bondage to Rome. And Jesus knows his, their intentions. He knows what's, their, what's in their heart and he knows what he has come to do. And so he slips away. There are a few things I think we can learn from this passage. The first one is Jesus' compassion. In every single miracle that I have, we have studied so far, we are seeing Jesus exhibit his compassion towards the people. In John, or John 6, verse 5, it says that Jesus looks up and sees the crowd coming towards him. Jesus was wanting to get away with his disciples. He was wanting rest. We also know that this was right after the time where John the Baptist had been beheaded. We don't know how long afterwards, but maybe he was still grieving the loss of his cousin. He is tired. He, he wants to meet with his, his friends. He wants to hear the stories of how they have been at work and the things that they have done. But the crowds keep coming. And he knows their condition. This is what always amazes me, is that Jesus knows the condition of the people who are seeking him. He sees the people. He doesn't ignore them. I think my response, if I was exhausted, if I just was done, and I just wanted to be with my friends, and a ministry call came, there might be a temptation to say, it can wait. But Jesus doesn't ignore them. In fact, he invites them in. All around us, there are people who are hungry. There are people who are, are starving and who are longing to be fed. And I'm not talking just about physical food. I'm talking about the need that they have for a deeper satisfaction in their souls that only Jesus can provide. There are people who desperately need the hope of Christ for Him to exhibit His compassion. This morning, I wonder, is there anyone among us that needs compassion? Are you here this morning and are you in a place where you need Jesus to see you and to invite you in? Or maybe do you see those around you who are in need of compassion? Are there others that you need to bring to the feet of Jesus who are desperate for Him. 
The next thing we can learn from this miracle is that Jesus will use whatever we give him. The little boy who seems to have nothing in the eyes of the world brings all that he has. And he freely gives everything that he has to Jesus and Jesus takes it, he blesses it, and he multiplies it. Tim, this morning you, you shared of Dr. Cook. And I never had the privilege of knowing Arnold, but I had the privilege of knowing his, his grandson, Jeremy. And of course, if you knew Dr. Cook, he was famous for one, one statement and one question. And it was an acronym. M-I-F-G. Had to make sure I got it all right. And what it meant was maximum impact for God. And I love this because I, I think what it is, is it's not saying you have to have everything available to God. That you're going to be able to accomplish everything, or you're, even that you might even accomplish huge, great things for God. But in my mind, what I always heard that statement, it was always, will you bring whatever it is that you have? Because whatever it is that you have, if you surrender it and give it freely to God, He will take it and He will use it and He will multiply it and He will bless it and it will make a maximum impact. This boy had five small loaves and two fish. And somewhere between 10 and 20,000 people ate until their bellies were full and there was some left over. You may not have much. You may not have much faith. You may not have much hope. You may not have experienced much freedom in Christ. But when you bring it to Jesus, He can multiply it and He can bless it. What do you have to bring to Jesus? And are you willing to give freely all that you have to Him? The third thing we can learn from this miracle is that Jesus wants to grow our faith. Over and over and over again, I see Jesus taking the disciples to greater levels of understanding and faith and trust. I love Philip. Philip was there. He, he witnessed Jesus turn water into wine. He's there. Philip has been out. He's been sent by Jesus and he's, he's healing the sick and he's casting out demons and he's proclaiming the Gospel. And yet then here, when all of a sudden he's tired and he is frustrated and he is alone, he's worn out and the crowds just keep coming and Jesus turns to him and says, Philip, what are we going to do? And Philip's like, I have no clue, Jesus. I'm done. This is what I, I think of Philip. And maybe I, I'm interpreting Scripture, I know. But I, this is what I resonate with. Jesus, sometimes I'm just done. I've seen you work, but I don't know how you're going to work in this situation. I don't know how you're going to provide. I don't know how you're going to work out this situation for your glory. I just don't. And Jesus is compassionate towards Philip as well. 
And Philip is the beneficiary. He gets to see Jesus breaking the bread and multiplying it. I think Jesus, was, in a way, was preparing them for the things that were to come. These were the men who were going to go out and become the forerunners and they would establish the church. And he's giving them a practical lesson on how much the Father cares for even their basic needs. God cares for us when we will come and we will seek Him. My question for you this morning is, are you moving to deeper levels of faith in Jesus? Are you moving to deeper levels of trust and surrender? And do you trust the Father to provide? Do you trust that in the process He is good? That as you surrender to Him, He will take care of you? The fourth thing I think we can learn from this miracle is that Jesus' plan is so much greater than we could ever imagine. so much greater. We can't even begin to fathom what God has intended. I was thinking about the contrast between the religious leaders and the crowds on the hill. The religious leaders, they refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. They refused to acknowledge that he was sent from God. But the crowds, they were convinced. The miracles that Jesus performs were a clear demonstration that he was the promised Messiah. They got it. They just simply got it wrong. They couldn't look beyond the physical. They only saw for what they could get out of Jesus. They equated Jesus with, as the Messiah with an idea of political revolution. They wanted Jesus to simply lead them out of the bondage of slavery once again. And Jesus certainly could have freed them from their physical bondage. But Jesus wants to give them an even greater freedom. Freedom from the bondage of sin and death. That is what he wants. Not just over our our, our present circumstances, but over our eternal circumstances, our eternal condition. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came not for an earthly kingdom, but for a heavenly kingdom. My question for you is, what are your expectations of God? Is he only good if he changes your circumstances? Are you like the religious leaders and and you, you are so convinced that you know what God will look like and how he will act that you've put him in a box and you can't even see him standing before you? Or are you willing to surrender to him for his kingdom, for his glory? In a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion, and so I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up.
And I'm going to invite the elders who are going to be serving communion as well to come forward. And as they're coming forward, I want to close with this thought. And I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon that this miracle takes place within the larger context of Jesus' explanation that he is the bread of life. And John actually tells us that it's this teaching that turned many of Jesus' followers away from. John would write this, he says, this is Jesus speaking, Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever eats this, feeds on this bread will live forever. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You see, following Jesus, believing in him, means that we surrender completely. We give him all that we have and we allow him to take us to deeper levels of faith and trust. And we surrender ourselves to his kingdom. It's not easy, but it's an invitation to go all in for Jesus. As we come to the communion table, and and I'm going to invite you, the elders are going to stand behind the table, and we'll invite you to come forward down the center aisles and then return to your seats down the sides. And if you you can't come to the front, as as the numbers of people who are passing through die down, our elders are going to come and they are going to serve you where you're seated. So just... Put your hand up if you can't come to the front. But as you come to the communion table this morning, my hope is that it is a visible demonstration of your surrender. Of your belief that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And through him, you may experience life. And so the invitation is to come and to remember his sacrifice for us until he comes again. So I would invite you to come this morning. Come to the communion table and receive the bread of life of Jesus.